Chapter Fourteen of Child Life in Colonial Days by Alice Morse Earl. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Story and Picture Books. Quote, if we are to consider that the condition of the human mind at any particular juncture is worth studying it is certainly of importance to know on what food its infancy is fed Unquote. the book hunter john hill burton eighteen sixty three Locke says in his Thoughts on Education that, quote, The only book I know of fit for children is Aesop's Fables and Renard the Fox. By this he means the only story books, a chapbook, a cheap ill-printed edition of aesop's fables was read in new england but i have found nothing to indicate that these fables were specially printed or bought for children or that children were familiar with them there seem to have been absolutely no books for the special delight of young men and maids in the first years in the new world no romances or tales of adventure nor were there any in england one richard condrington a puritan and a tiresome bore wrote a book Quote, for the instruction of the younger sort of maids and boarders at schools unquote. it is about as void of instruction as a book well could be and this is his pleasant notion of a girl's own book unquote. Reader's note, and then we have the entry from the book. Quote, to entertain young gentlewomen in their hours of recreation, we shall commend unto them God's revenge against murder and Artemidorus, his interpretation of dreams. Unquote. It isn't hard to guess which one of these two was quote, taken out unquote, most frequently from the school library. Speculation about dreams was one of the few existing outlets to youthful imagination, and many happy hours were spent in elaborate interpretations thus tired nature's sweet restorer balmy sleep supplied the element of romance which the dull waking hours denied and made life worth living though no great books were written for children during all these years Three of the great books of the world, written with deep purpose for grown readers, were calmly appropriated by children with a promptness that would seem to prove the truth of the assertion that children are the most unerring critics of a story. These books were Pilgrim's Progress, first published in 1688, 
Robinson Crusoe in seventeen fourteen and Gulliver's Travels in seventeen twenty six. The religious, political, and satirical purposes of these books have been wholly obscured by their warm adoption as stories. They have been loved by hundreds of thousands of English reading children and translated into many other languages. Hundreds of other books, chiefly for children, have been written that have been inspired by or modeled on these books. Thus the debt of children to them is multiplied. The history of children's story-books in both England and America begins with the life of John Newberry, the English publisher who, settled in London in 1744, his life and his work have been told at length by Mr. Charles Welch in the book entitled a bookseller of the last century. Newberry was the first English bookseller who made any extended attempt to publish books especially for children's reading. The text of these books was written by himself and by various English authors, among them no less a genius than Oliver Goldsmith. His books were promptly exported to America, where they were doubtless as eagerly welcomed as in England. The meager advertisements of colonial newspapers contain his lists. During Newberry's active career as a publisher, an activity was his distinguishing characteristic. He published over 200 books for children. One of the earliest was announced in 1744 as a, quote, pretty little pocketbook, unquote. It contained the story of Jack the Giant Killer an amusing, albeit thrifty, intermezzo of all children's books was the publisher's persistent advertisement of his other juvenile literary wares. If a generous godfather is introduced, he is at once importuned to buy another of good Mr. Newberry, the printer's books. When Tommy Trulove is to have his reward, of virtue and industry, he implores that it may be a little book sold at the bookshop over against Aldermary Churchyard, Bow Lane. If a kind mamma sets out to learn Jenny June to read, she does it with one of Marshall's universal battledoors so beloved of young masters and misses. The old-time reader was never permitted to forget for over a page that the good, kind, thoughtful gentleman who printed this book had plenty of others to sell. Newbury was the most ingenious of these advertisers. This is an example of one of his newspaper eye-catches, printed in 1755. Quote, this day was published Nurse Trulove's New Year's Gift, or the Book of Books for Children, adorned with cuts and designed as a present for every little boy who would become a great man and ride upon a fine horse, and to every little girl who would become a great woman and ride in a Lord Mayor's gilt coach. 
printed for the author who has ordered these books to be given gratis to all boys and girls at the bible and sun in st paul's churchyard they paying for the binding which is only two pence for each book unquote. other books were sold quote, with a ball and pincushion the use of which will infallibly make tommy a good boy and polly a good girl unquote. the juvenile characters in the books are always turning aside to read or buy some one of mr newberry's little books or pulling one of mr newberry's nice gilded library out of their pockets or taking dr james's fever powder which was also one of mr newberry's popular specialties the revolutionary patriot and printer isaiah thomas was said to be very quote, ingenious in spirit unquote. i do not know the exact significance of this term unless it means that he was a wide-awake publisher which he certainly was he was a bright stirring man of quick wit and active intelligence in all things he brought out just after the revolution many little books for children few of them have any pretense of originality even in a single page nearly all are wholesale reprints of various english books for children chiefly those of john newberry i don't know what made thomas so ready to catch up the reprinting of these children's books in advance of other american printers perhaps his attention was led to it by the fact that his prentice's token or specimen of his work when he was a printer's prentice was one of those little books it was issued in seventeen sixty one by a barclay in cornhill boston and a copy now in the possession of the american antiquarian society at worcester massachusetts is endorsed in thomas's own handwriting as being by his prentice hand the book is entitled tom thumb's playbook to teach children their letters as soon as they can speak it contains the old rhyme a apple pie b bit it c cut it etc then came the rhymes beginning a was an archer and shot at a frog also a short catechism isaiah thomas lived in worcester printed these books there and founded there the american antiquarian society in the library of that society now in that city may be seen copies of nearly all these children's books which he reprinted and a collection of pretty quaint little volumes they are it is the universal decision of special students of juvenile literature that goldsmith wrote goody two-shoes washington irving thought the title page plainly bore the stamp of the sly and playful humor of the author of the vicar of wakefield it reads thus quote, the history of little goody two-shoes otherwise called mrs marjorie two-shoes with the means by which she acquired her learning and wisdom and in consequence thereof her estate set forth at large for the benefit of those who from a state of rags and care and having shoes but half a pair their fortune and their fame would fix and gallop in a coach and six 
Copies of Goody Two Shoes are seldom seen for sale today, and many copies are expurgated. The following quaint chapter is the one chosen for excision because our children must never hear the word ghost. Quote, How the whole parish was frightened. Who does not know Lady Ducklington? Or who does not know that she was buried at this parish church? Well, I never saw so grand a funeral in all my life, but the money they squandered away would have been better laid out in little books for children, or in meat, drink, and clothes for the poor. This is a fine hearse indeed, and the nodding plumes on the horses look very grand. But what end does that answer, otherwise than to display the pride of the living, or the vanity of the dead? Fie upon such folly, say I, and heaven grant that those who want more sense may have it. But all the country round came to see the burying, and it was late before the corpse was interred, after which in the night, or rather about four o'clock in the morning, the bells were heard to jingle in the steeple, which frightened the people prodigiously who all thought it was Lady Ducklington's ghost dancing among the bell-ropes. The people flocked to Will Dobbins, the clerk, and wanted him to go see what it was, but William said he was sure it was a ghost, and that he would not offer to open the door. At length Mr. Long, the rector, hearing such an uproar in the village, went to the clerk to know why he did not go into the church and see who was there. I go, says William, why the ghost would frighten me out of my wits. Mrs. Dobbins, too, cried, and laying hold on her husband, said he should not be eat up by the ghost. A ghost, you blockhead, said Mr. Long, in a pet. Did either of you ever see a ghost, or know anybody that did? Yes, says the clerk. My father did once in the shape of a windmill, and it walked all around the church in a white sheet with jackboots on, and had a gun by its side instead of a sword. A fine picture of a ghost, truly, says Mr. Long. Give me the key to the church, you monkey for I tell you there is no such thing now, whatever may have been formerly. Then taking the key, he went to the church, all the people following him. As soon as he opened the door, what sort of a ghost do you think appeared? Why, little two-shoes, who, being weary, had fallen asleep in one of the pews during the funeral service, and was shut in all night. She immediately asked Mr. Long's pardon for the trouble she had given him, told him she had been locked into the church, and said she should not have rung the bells, but she was very cold, and hearing Farmer Bolt's man go whistling by with his horses, she was in hope he would have went to the clerk for the key to let her out." Unquote. It would seem that even an advanced pedagogist and child culturist might forgive this delightful ghost, like a windmill with jackboots and a gun, just as a modern grammarian must forgive the verb would have went from little two-shoes, who, as Mr. Charles Welch says, really ought to have known better. The first Worcester edition of Goody Two-Shoes was printed in 1787, with some alterations suited to time and place. Marjorie sings the Coos's Chorus, which may be found in the pretty little pocket-book of Mr. Thomas, etc., and when she grows up she is made a teacher in Mrs. Williams' college which is described in Nurse Trulove's American books. It will doubtless be a surprise to many that Tommy Tripp's history of beasts and birds, etc., was written by Goldsmiths. 
This little book opens with an account of Tommy and his dog Jowler, who serves Tommy for a horse. Quote, when Tommy has a mind to ride, he pulls a little bridle out of his pocket, whips it upon honest Jowler, and away he gallops, tant wivy. As he rides through the town, he frequently stops at the doors to know how the good children do within, and if they are good and learn their books, he leaves an apple, an orange, or a plum cake at the door, and away he gallops again, tant wivy, tant wivy. As a specimen of Tom's literary skill, he gives the lines beginning, Three children sliding on the ice, Upon a summer's day, etc. The description of animals are such as would be expected from the author of Animated Nature, an amusing medley of truth and tradition. The name Tommy Tripp seems to have been deemed a taken one in juvenile literature and is found in many books for children both in the titles and as the name of a scribed author it was used until this century the title page of a new lottery book by tommy tripp is here shown the manner of using this lottery book is thus explained Quote, as soon as the child can speak, let him stick a pin through the page by the side of the letter you wish to teach him. Turn the page every time and explain the letter by which means the child's mind will be so fixed upon the letter that he will get a perfect idea of it and will not be liable to mistake it for any other then show him the picture opposite the letter and make him read the name of unquote. the antique mind seems to have found even in biblical days a vast satisfaction in riddles quintilian said the making and study of riddles strengthened the reflective faculties old-time jest-books called guest-books were deemed proper reading for children such as joe miller's and merry tales of the wise men of gotham very stale and dull were the jests the puzzling cap was a popular one also the sphinx or allegorical lozenges others were guess again and one entitled food for the mind which bore these lines on the title page who riddles tells and many tales or nut-brown cakes and mugs of ale by homer nurse trula was a popular character in these books and a popular story was nurse trula's new year gift designed as a present to every little boy who would become a great man and ride upon a fine horse and to every little girl who would become a fine woman and ride in a governor's coach but turn over the leaf and see more of the matter this was originally an english book one of newbury's as shown by his advertisement already quoted thomas americanized the lord mayor's coach into a governor's coach but he carried out to the fullest extent the english publisher's mode of advertising the subtitle of the book was history of mistress williams and her plum cake with a word or two concerning precedence and trade mrs williams when i first became acquainted with her was a widowed gentlewoman who kept a little college in a country town for the instruction of young gentlemen and ladies in the science of a b c 
the books she put into the hands of her pupils were first the christmas box second the father's gift third mr perry's excellent spelling book fourth the brother's gift fifth the sister's gift sixth the infant tutor seventh the pretty little pocket-book eight the pretty plaything ninth tommy tripp's history of birds and beasts and when their minds were so enlarged as to be capable of other entertainments she recommended to them the lilliputian magazine and other books that are sold by mr isaiah thomas at his bookstore near the courthouse in worcester etc etc it will be noted that the word college is employed in its old-time meaning of school but i am not sure that thomas used it innocently for in the following pages the text compares mrs williams to any other old lady in european universities the christmas box referred to has a decided american flavor it was printed in seventeen eighty nine and is entitled nurse true love's christmas box or a golden plaything for children it gives the history of one master friendly and is specially forced in style here are two sentences Quote, he learned so fast dear me it did my heart good to hear him talk and read why well, he got all the little books by rote that are sold by mr thomas in worcester and when he was but a very little boy then he never missed church ah he was a charming boy he is chosen congressman already and yet is not puffed up well i saw him seated in a chair when he was chosen congressman and he looked he looked i do not know what he looked like but everybody was in love with him Close quote. The latter sentence is accompanied by a cut of Congressman Friendly, imbecile incontinence, seated in a chair fixed on two handles, and borne aloft by four footmen in full livery. This picture had evidently seen service as a chairing in some English book. When we think what the congressmen of that day were, earnest simple-hearted patriots and that thomas knew them well it seems strange that he could have given such stuff to american children on the inside of the cover are printed these lines quote, come hither little lady fair and you shall ride and take the air but first of all pray let me know if you can say your criss-cross row for none should e'er in coaches be unless they know their a b c Unquote. it may interest children to read a short story from one of these little volumes to see the sort of thing children had to amuse them a hundred years ago this is from a book called the father's gift or how to be wise and happy quote, there were two little boys and girls the children of a fine lady and gentleman who loved them dearly they were all so good and loved one another so well that everybody who saw them talked of them with admiration far and near they would part with anything to each other love the poor spoke kindly to servants did everything they were bid to do were not proud knew no strife but who should learn their books best 
and be the prettiest scholar the servants loved them and would do anything they desired they were not proud of fine clothes their heads never ran on their playthings when they should mind their books they said grace before they ate and prayer before going to bed and as soon as they rose they were always clean and neat would not tell a fib for the world and were above doing anything that required one god blessed them more and more and their papa and mamma uncles aunts and cousins for their sakes they were a happy family no one idle all prettily employed the little masters at their books the little misses at their needles at their play hours they were never noisy mischievous or quarrelsome no such word was ever heard from their mouths as why mayn't i have this or that as well as betty or bobby or why should sally have this or that any more than i but it was always as mamma pleases she knows best with a bow and a smile without surliness to be seen on their brow they grew up the masters became fine scholars and fine gentlemen and were honored the misses fine ladies and fine housewives the gentlemen sought to marry one of the misses and the gentlemen the other happy was he that could be admitted into their company they had nothing to do but to pick and choose the best matches in the country while the greatest ladies for birth and most remarkable for virtue thought themselves honored by the addresses of the two brothers they all married and made good papas and mamas and so the blessing goes round Unquote. the brother's gift or the naughty girl reformed of which the third worcester edition was printed in seventeen ninety one bore these lines as a motto ye misses shun the coxcomb of the mall the masquerade the root the midnight ball in lieu of these more useful arts pursue and as your fair be wise and virtuous too though useful arts were inculcated by this book the reward of virtue to the reformed girl was a fine new pair of stays which are duly pictured another of newbery's beloved books was the history of tommy careless or the misfortunes of a week on monday tommy fell in the water spoiled his coat and was sent to bed on tuesday he lost his kite and ended the day in bed on wednesday he fell from the apple tree and again was put in bed thursday the maid gave him two old pewter spoons he made some dump moulds and in casting his dump scalded his fingers and as ever was put in retirement on friday he killed the canary bird and to bed again on saturday he managed to incite dobbin to kick the house dog and kill him then he caught his own fingers in a trap and ended the week in bed as he began it when we think of the vast number of these books it seems strange that so few have survived the penny books were too valueless to be saved sometimes we find one among abandoned or discarded piles or bundles of books it has been the fate however for most children's books to be destroyed by children with coarse time-brown paper poor type and torn worn leaves they are not very attractive open one at random ten to one you have before you the page upon which centers the interest of the book 
its climax, its adventure, or its high wit. That page was a favorite. Many times you will find crude attempts at amateur coloring of the prints. In these books is found an entirely different code from that inculcated by modern books or taught by earlier books. The first book for children simply exhorted goodness, giving no reasons but commanding obedience and virtue. The books of the Puritan epoch taught children to be good for fear of hell. This succeeding school instructed them to be good because it was profitable. All the advice is frankly politic. Much is of mercenary mold. Children are instructed to do aright not because they should, but because they will benefit thereby and profit is given the most worldly guise, such as riding in a coach, having a purse full of gold, wearing silks and satins, becoming Lord Mayor, or most exalted station of all, a proud sheriff. A chief officer of the crown, the old-time sheriff of each English county, was superior in rank to every nobleman in the county. The diarist Evelyn tells that his father, when sheriff, had a hundred and fifty servants in livery and many gentlemen attendants. Punishment, the abhorrence of parents, and evil results fall upon children not so fiercely for lying, stealing, treachery, or cruelty as they do for soiling their clothes, falling into the water, tumbling off walls, breaking windows or china, and a score of other actions which are the result of carelessness, clumsiness, or indifference rather than of viciousness. These books would educate, had they been forcible enough to be of profound influence, generations of trucklers, time-servers, and money-lovers. The natural inclination and the diversity of inclination of children made them rise above these instructions. It was the constant effort of the artists, authors, and teachers of olden times to imbue youth with the notion that no harm could possibly come to the good unless early death could be counted an evil. Children were taught that virtue and each good action was ever immediately and conspicuously rewarded. The pictures repeated and emphasized the didactic teachings, and morality, industry, and good intentions were made to triumph over things animate and inanimate. That the old illustrations were a delight to children cannot be doubted they were so easily comprehended. The bad boys of the story always wore a miserable countenance and figure, and the good boys were smugly prosperous. The prim girls are shown the beloved of all, and the tomboys equally the misery and embarrassment. All this is lacking in modern picture books, which so truly represent real life and things that the naughty boy is not blazoned at first glance as a different being from the pious delight. I am inclined to believe that the old-time grotesqueness was more amusing and impressive to children than modern realism, that there was a stronger association of ideas with the emphasis of disproportion the absurdities and anachronisms of scenery and costume were unnoted by the juvenile reader because he knew no better in the children's books which i have examined the colored illustrations are all of dates later than eighteen hundred when dated at all mr andrew w tour in the preface of his most interesting collection entitled pages and pictures from forgotten children's books says the coloring was done by children in their teens who worked with great celerity
Each child had a single pan of watercolor, a brush, a properly colored guide, and a pile of printed sheets. One child painted in all red required by the copy, another the green, another the blue, and so on till the coloring was finished. There was one book which children love that every little child loves today, Mother Goose's Melodies. Attempts have been made to show that the name and collection were both American, that the former referred to Mrs. Goose or Virgoose, a Boston goodwife. The name Mother Goose is believed by most folk to be of French, not of English or American origin. A collection of nursery rhymes was printed for John Newbery about 1760 under the popular name Mother Goose's Melodies. About 1785, Isaiah Thomas issued at Worcester, Massachusetts, an edition of Mother Goose's Melodies with songs from Shakespeare, and certainly this must have been an oasis in the desert of dull books for new england children there is no pretense in this edition of thomas's that the book had any american origin it is said to be a collection of rhymes by old british nurses and such it really was hallowell says many of these nursery rhymes are fragments of old ballads Mr. Whitmore deems the great popularity of Mother Goose due to the Boston editions issued in large numbers from 1824 to 1860. The preface to the Worcester edition of 1785 circa is said to be written by a very great writer of very little books. Could this have been Oliver Goldsmith? Irving, in his Life of Goldsmith, refers to the poet's love of catches and simple melodies, and tells of his singing his favorite song about an old woman tossed in a blanket seventeen times as high as the moon. A Miss Hawkins boasted late in life that Goldsmith taught her to play Jack and Jill with bits of paper on his fingers just as we show the trick to children today. Included in these melodies are the verses, quote, three children sliding on the ice, unquote, which we know were written by Goldsmith. Here is an example of one of the melodies and its note. Quote, trip upon trenchers dances and dishes my mother sent me for some balm some balm she made me tread lightly and leave again quickly for fear the young men would do me some harm yet don't you see what naughty tricks they put upon me they broke my pitcher and spilt my water and huffed my mother and child her daughter and chide her daughter and kissed my sister instead of me. What a succession of misfortunes befell this poor girl, but the last circumstance was the most affecting and might have proved fatal. Unquote. Winslow's View of Britain according to the notion of humor of the day the notion of goldsmith or some other book hack wag these notes were all ascribed as quotations from some profound author just as the cuts in goody two-shoes were said to be by michael angelo and the text from the vatican thus after the rhymes see saw marjorie daw etc is the sober comment quote, it is a mean and scandalous practice in an author to put notes to a thing that deserves no notice grotius unquote. after the three wise men of gotham which ends with the lines if the bowl had been stronger my tale had been longer 
is the sententious note quote, it's long enough never lament the loss of what is not worth having boil unquote. puffendorf coke on littleton pliny bensley on the sublime and beautiful maps geography of the mind are other authors and books that are soberly cited a very priggish little book was entitled cobwebs to catch flies the tone of its text may be shown in the dialogue about quote, the tossabout the brothers who attended a country fair had been forbidden by their mother to ride in the merry-go-round dear ned wished to try the fun dear james said with propriety quote, dear ned i am sure our mamma would object to our riding in this tossabout ned answered quote, dear james did you ever hear her name the tossabout unquote. Quote, no dear ned but i am certain that if she had known of it she would have given us the same caution as she did about the merry-go-round ned paused a moment then said quote, how happy am i to have an elder brother who is so prudent unquote. whereupon james replied quote, i am no less happy that you are so willing to be advised etc a distinctively american book for children was printed in philadelphia in seventeen ninety three a history of the revolution it was in biblical phraseology this sort of writing had been made popular by franklin in his famous parable against persecution which he wrote committed to memory and pretended to read as the last chapter in genesis exceeding plainness and even coarseness of speech was presented in the pages of these old-time story-books it was simply the speech of the time shown in the plays tales and essays of the day and reflected to some degree even in the literature for children as an example of what was deemed wit may be given a portion of the prologue to who killed cock robin the book is entitled death and burial of cock robin Quote, we were all enjoying ourselves very agreeably after dinner when on a sudden sir peter's lady gave so loud a sneeze as threw the whole company into disorder master danvers instead of cracking a nut gave his fingers a tolerable squeeze in the nutcrackers miss friendly who had carried with intent to put a fine cherry in her mouth missed the mark and bit her finger sir peter himself who was filling a glass of wine spilled the bottle on the table miss comely and miss danvers who were talking with each other with their heads very close to each other very politely knocked them together to see which was the hardest i myself had twelve of my ten toes handsomely trod on by one of the young ladies jumping off a chair in a fright but this is not all no nor half what i was an eye-witness of for just at the time her ladyship sneezed i was busy contemplating the beauty and song of miss prudence's cock robin that was singing and as noisy as a grig when my lady sneezed which so frightened him he fell to the bottom of the cage as dead as a stone Unquote. a widely read little book was somewhat pompously entitled the looking-glass for the mind it was chiefly translated from that much admired work l'ami des enfants those terse and entertaining tales of berquin had perennial youth in their english form and were reprinted till our own day the illustrations of bewick have a distinct value as showing the dress of children a few are here shown the first is from william and amelia both children are not eight years old 
the long train gowns bare necks elbow sleeves and tall feathered hats are precisely the dress of grown women of that day as william's coat and knee breeches are the garb of a man the two ladies were walking arm in arm humming a pretty song then fashionable in the village collection of ballads when they glanced at the apples in the tree william quote, the politest and prettiest little fellow in the village unquote, dropped his shepherd's pie climbed the tree and threw down apples in the ladies aprons as charlotte got more and bigger apples amelia abandoned her quote, usual pleasing prattle unquote, sulked and at last ordered william to fall down quote, on his knees on this instant unquote, to apologize as he refused amelia pouted at dinner would not touch her wine nor say quote, your good health william unquote, and at last was ordered by her mother from the table william after many attempts sneaked out with some peaches for her and thus an affectionate and generous friendship was restored another illustration is for the tale caroline or a lesson to cure vanity Caroline's dress is further described in the text as a pea-green taffety with fine pig trimmings, elegantly worked shoes, hair a clod of powder and pomatum. Her, quote, fine silk slip was nicely soused in the rain, unquote. Her hoop and flounces and train caught in the furzes, her gauze hat blew in a pond of filthy water, etc. All these made her glad to return to a more modest dress. The illustration for the worthy tenant shows Farmer Harris speaking to polite Sophia, while, quote, Robert was so shamefully impertinent as to walk round the farmer holding his nose and asking his brother if he did not perceive something of the smell of a dung heap. He then lighted some paper at the fire and carried it round the room in order to disperse, as he said, the unpleasant smell, etc. Clarissa, or the grateful orphan, who was so good that the king relinquished a large fortune to her complete the quartet of illustrations a group of books was published just after the end of the colonial period which had a vast influence on the children of our young republic these books were english the most important of them were the history of the fairchild family seventeen eighty eight circa by mrs sherwood sanford and merton seventeen eighty three by thomas day the parents assistant seventeen ninety six by maria edgeworth evenings at home seventeen ninety two by dr aiken and mrs barbauld the painfully religious tales of james janeway were not the only ones to familiarize death to the reading child the fairchild family was once deemed a most charming as it was certainly a most earnest book and it has ever had popularity for within a few years it has been reprinted in a large edition I wonder how many deathbed scenes and references there are in that book. Nor are ordinary deathbed, nor are ordinary deathbeds the saddest or most gruesome scenes. The little Fairchilds have lost their little tempers and pommeled each other somewhat. Their father takes them as a shocking object lesson to see the body of a man hung in chains on a gibbet the horror of the progress through the gloomy wood to this revolting sight the father's unsparing comments the hideous account of the thing rattling swinging turning its horrible countenance while mr fairchild described and explained and gloated over it 
and finally kneeled and prayed all this through several pages no carefully reared child to-day would be permitted to read mr fairchild's reason for taking them to this gibbeted corpse would not be omitted from this account it was to show them something which i think they will remember as long as they lived that they may love each other with perfect and heavenly love a painful and ever-present lesson found on every page is the sinfulness of the world the children recite verses and quote bible texts to prove that all mankind have bad hearts and lucy commits to memory a prayer a portion of which runs thus quote, my heart is so exceedingly wicked so vile so full of sin that even when i appear to be tolerably good even then i am sinning when i am praying or reading the bible or hearing other people read the bible even then i sin when i speak i sin when i am silent i sin Unquote. sanford and merton is most insincerely recommended by many folk to children to-day I cannot believe any one who has recently read the book would ever expect a modern child to care for it. It is hallowed in the memory of people who read it in their youth and fancy they still like it, but won't take the trouble to read it and see that they don't. Jane and Ann Taylor should be added to this class of authors. The poem My Mother by Ann Taylor was published in book form and had many imitations. My father, my sister, my brother, my grandmother, my playmate, my pony, my Fido, and lastly, my governess. All says the advertisement in the same style, a style so easily imitated as to seem almost like parody quote, who learnt me how to read and spell and with my needle work as well and call me her good little girl my governess who made the scholar proud to show the sampler worked to friend and foe and with instruction fonder grow my governess unquote. we have the contemporary opinion of charles lamb of this new school of juvenile literature in eighteen o two he wrote thus to coleridge goody two-shoes is almost out of print mrs barbal stuff has banished all the old classics of the nursery and the shopman at Newbury is hardly deigned to reach them off an old exploded corner of a shelf when Mary asks for them. Mrs. Barbold's and Mrs. Trimmer's nonsense lay in piles about. Knowledge as insignificant and vapid as Mrs. Barbold's books convey, it seems must come to a child in the shape of knowledge his empty noodle must be turned with conceit of his own powers when he has learned that a horse is an animal and billy is better than a horse and such like instead of the beautiful interest in mild tales which made the child a man while all the time he suspected himself to be no bigger than a child hang them i mean the cursed barball crew those blights and blasts of all that is human in man and child. Unquote. It may be seen by the last named books on this list that another series of books for children were abridgments of Tom Jones, Joseph Andrews, Pamela, and other great novels of the J. Rabelais said no abridgment of a book could be a good abridgment. These are worse than none. The childish reader is notified that if he likes the little books, his good friend Mr. Thomas has the larger books for sale. 
the engraving of the great mr richardson sitting in his grotto in seventeen fifty one in turban banyan and slippers reading sir charles Grattison to a group of friends chiefly admiring young ladies in great hats and padsoy sacks is typical of his life he lived in a flower garden of girls one intimate circle around his feet and swelling circles extending even to america all facing inward and worshipping him and his works they wept and smiled in a vast chorus at the dull pages of pamela at the surprising ones of clarissa and the thousands of interesting ones of sir charles Grattison. these seven volumes of letters exchanged between sixteen women twenty men all lovers and fourteen italians who are enumerated as of another sex and are likewise chiefly lovers are too prolix to be read to-day but were a record of love-making which touched every girl's heart a century and more ago little anna green winslow speaks occasionally in her diary of story-books she had for a new year's gift the history of joseph andrews abbreviated in gilt and flowered covers she read the pilgrim's progress the mother's gift gulliver's travels the puzzling cap the french orators and gaffer's two shoes this may have been our own goody not gaffer the flowery and gilt binding of these books so often spoken of in the notices is wholly a thing of the past it was made in holland and germany but recent inquiry about it discovered that the stamps and presses used in its manufacture had all been destroyed an enthusiastic lover of these little books wrote quote, talk of your vellum gold embossed morocco roan and calf the blue and yellow wraps of old were prettier by half unquote. they were cheap enough but a penny apiece some of them others sixpence it is doubtful whether they were ever sold in America in vast numbers. Children lent them to each other. Anna Green Winslow borrowed them, and letters of her day show other children doing likewise. It was a day of book lending, for circulating libraries were slow of formation. The minister's library was often the largest one in each town, and he lent his precious books to his flock. In the sparse advertisements of the colonial newspapers are many advertisements of book owners who have lent books, forgotten to whom, and wish them returned. The only way country children had of reading many books was by borrowing. American boys and girls felt till our own day both bewilderment and impatience at forever reading stories whose local color was wholly strange to them. Dr. Holmes thus expresses this condition of things. Quote, Books where James was called Jem, not Jim, as we heard it, where naughty schoolboys got through a gap in the hedge to steal farmer Giles' red streaks instead of shinning over the fence to hook old Daddy Jones' Baldwin's, where Hodge used to go to the alehouse for his mug of beer, while we used to see old Joe steering for the grocery to get his glass of rum, where there were larks and nightingales instead of yellow birds and bobolinks, where the robin was a little domestic bird that fed a table instead of a great fidgety, jerky, whooping thrush the debt of amusement which american children owed to newbury was paid in this century by a supply to english children of a vast number of little books of profit and pleasure all written by a single author quote, peter parley unquote, or samuel g goodrich in the middle of the century this gentleman stated that he had written one hundred and twenty books that were professedly juvenile 
of these and his books for older minds about seven million copies had been sold and about three hundred thousand were still sold annually they were sent to england in vast numbers and were reprinted there both with and without the author's permission and when the original books were not pirated the name peter parley were calmly attached to the compositions of english authors as a vastly saleable trademark scores of american authors by the middle of this century were writing little books for children these were a class by themselves sunday school books they do not come within the very elastic time limit set for this chapter they are not old enough in years though they are rapidly becoming as obsolete as any children's books of the last century books written avowedly for sunday schools are in decreasing demand those with sectarian teachings especially find fewer and fewer purchases End of chapter 14